Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. And if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will come forward and bring you a Bible. Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. As usual, when time allots, we do go through a few verses in the Old Testament. So we're going to jump back to pretty much the center of the Bible in the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs comes after Psalms. And we're going to be in Proverbs 10 today, verses 18 through 21. Proverbs 10, verse 18. It says, whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. These are sins of the tongue, which really emanate from sins of the heart. Uh, you see some hypocrisy in there, some lying, some gossip, uh, pretty bad stuff. But, you know, a lot of these proverbs are self-explanatory. They're one-liners that really are truthful. They're God's truth, and it's something that we can take with us and hide in our hearts, and uh, we, hopefully we can live our lives by these proverbs. Verse 19, it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. This is kind of like uh, the law of statistics. The more you say, the greater likelihood something bad is going to come out. And if you're just idle chit-chatting with somebody, eventually there's some sin that's going to come out. And it's, it's right here in the scripture. There's a saying, you know, that says, talking about restraining, he who restrains his lips is wise. Better to be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> you know, I find even in public speaking, it's challenging. You, you do hundreds, thousands of sermons, and, uh, you, you know, I pray before I come up here, Lord, let it be your spirit, because if I'm left up to my own devices, then I'm going to say something stupid, and I'm going to regret it. So we definitely want the Lord to be guiding us. Verse 20, the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Silver was highly valued in those days, in the days that this was written, as is what comes out of the mouth of the righteous. I remember a humorous commercial when I was younger, uh, and it was just very catchy. Everybody knew this commercial. It was for E.F. Hutton. And two people would be walking down the street in a crowded area, and the one person would say to the other, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and everybody would stop and go like this and listen. But truthfully, in the word of God, it's the righteous person that wisdom is going to come out of their mouth. And it's like choice silver, and we ought to listen and pay attention to it. In contrast, the heart of the, the wicked is worth little. Sounds a little harsh, but it's accurate. Verse 21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. The righteous live lives to bless others. We've seen that. And the fool lives an opposite life and eventually comes to nothing. And the last one, to do evil, oh, excuse me, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Wrapping this up with God's blessing, he makes one rich and he adds no sorrow to it. You know what's interesting is in the world, when you do deals with folks, they expect something in return. It's this for that, right? There's always strings attached. But according to this, when the Lord blesses, he doesn't add any sorrow to it. He doesn't add any guilt. He doesn't add any strings. He just blesses. And that's just a very comforting feeling knowing that. And the, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich. Now, we can look at our lives, and I don't really know anybody here looking out here that's rich. But we are rich. 
you know, and I think that if we start to have an attitude of gratitude, and I think all of us could stop when we're praying to the Lord and think of 10 things that we should be grateful for. Once we're more thankful, it brings contentment, and that contentment brings peace. I'm happy to have a job. I'm happy to have simple things in life. I'm happy to wake up this morning and, you know, it's another day to serve. So to me, I'm rich. I mean, I'm not rich, but you know what I'm saying, right? And the cool thing is that in our study today in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that the wisdom of God, the deep things of God do make us rich. Okay, without further ado, the last time we saw the differences in 1 Corinthians 2 between the natural man and the spiritual man and heavenly wisdom. And today we're going to see an exhortation, or last time, excuse me, we saw an exhortation to the deeper things of God. And today we're going to focus more on God's wisdom and the maturity process in the life of the believer. So 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul continues. He says, And I, brothers, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For there, where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? We see that word carnal, which we haven't seen in a while, mentioned four times, and we're going to explain that. We saw in the, in the previous chapter, and remember, the whole chapter delineations were, were done centuries later. So there was no chapter delineations. This was a complete thought when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian believers in the Corinthian church. Last Sunday we saw he just finished explaining the difference between the natural and spiritual man and being born again. But here he further divides the spiritual man into maturity levels. Now, I, I think this is worth repeating because it, there's a flow to it. You have a natural man. You have all of us here were born physically. That's a no-brainer. We'd start with that. We came out of our mother's womb at a certain date. That was our birth date. That was the date of our body, our natural body being born into this world. But our spirit is not quickened yet. It's, we're not regenerative people. We're just natural people. Because of the curse of sin, we're born into sin. We sin. It's what we do. If we live our lives and we hear the word of God or somebody explains God's love to us or we hear the message of the gospel, uh, the word of God, the Bible says, quickens our spirit, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit draws us. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I draw all peoples unto myself. So there's a pulling. There's a drawing of you towards God because he loves you. He's looking to reconcile himself with sinful men and women. So you, you, you understand that Jesus died for you. 2,000 years ago, he shed his blood for the remission of our sins. And that's good news. But we have to lay hold, take hold of that promise. Say, yes, I believe it. Yes, I do want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. At that moment, there's a conversion experience. You become a spiritual person. If there was any magic in the world, this is magic. It's God's magic. Now your spirit is alive. You become a spiritual being. Your eyes are open. The film is removed. You start to understand spiritual things, the heavenly realm, angels and demons, God, creation. And you can see the earth now from a different vantage point. So the natural man, if he's not born again, 
He lives a natural life, doesn't understand spiritual things. You explain the Bible to someone who's not spiritual yet, and they, they may laugh at you, they may scoff at you, because they can't understand that component of being a spiritual being. You're a spiritual being, though. You understand all the things in the natural realm even better, and now you understand everything in the spiritual realm. Okay, well, let's take the spiritual man okay, and further that dichotomy. The spiritual man now starts as a babe in Christ. He's a baby. He's born again in the spiritual realm. And over time, that baby matures and grows and learns the deeper things of God. We, we saw that last Sunday. But what's interesting now is all... Let me qualify what I'm going to say next is when you're born again, you are a carnal Christian. Why? Because you've lived such a life of the flesh. You've lived with this flesh for so long that even though you're born again, the flesh have a, has a strong pull on you. You may still do things and act certain ways and plan sin, but you're, there's a struggle in you now because you're also spiritual, but you're carnal. You're not mature. Over years, over time, through the word, through prayer, through fellowship, through the Holy Spirit teaching us and convicting us, we become, hopefully, mature spiritual beings. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon where somebody who is um, starting to grow in that process spiritually reverts back to baby behavior. We see this in the real world. You ever see an adult act like a baby and throw a tantrum? Right? Okay, everybody's seen that. Maybe we've done it at times. Spiritual people can do the same thing. You're on a course, you backslide, you, you, you willfully sin, you, you kind of revert back to baby behavior. And this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. They should have moved on from the message of the cross. That's our base, that's our cornerstone. And Paul wanted to teach them the, the deeper things of God. But they started reverting back to baby carnal behavior. Started reverting back to partisanship. I liked Peter. Well, I like Paul. Well, I, and it caused divisions in the church. And we see a lot of problems with this church. So that's where Paul is. The carnal Christian, the word carnal in the Greek is sarkikos. It means fleshly, bodily, animal, temporal. This person does not walk proper. They may be saved. They may have given their life to Christ, but they're not walking. They behave no differently than their pagan neighbor. Not a discernible difference. They're not interested in the deeper things of God. They like just where they are. I don't want to move forward. Could mean persecution. Could mean I lose friendships. Could mean a lot of things. I like right here where I am, and I don't want to go any further. Persons may be barely saved. The carnal Christian is worse than their pagan and the worst pagan and heathen neighbor because he or she bears Christ's name, and they're supposed to be an example. So they're worse. Is that what we want? I don't think so. Do we want to barely make it to heaven or do we want to be victorious in Christ? Do we want to constantly go back and forth between backsliding and then coming back and backsliding? Or do we want to have victory over our sins? Do we want to be in the spirit? Do we want to search for the deeper things of God where the Lord takes us to the next level? I'm fascinated by a few I guess stories or things in the American culture and maybe some British culture, but you know, you look at the story of the Incredible Hulk, right? It's a fantasy. Dr. David Banner, and he, he becomes, when he's angry, he, his muscles start splitting his shirt and he becomes green, right? 
And he becomes the Incredible Hulk. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. But you, you kind of see, I wonder these, these stories, if, if they were kind of picking up on some of this flesh versus the spirit thing. You have a man who struggles with his rage, and when he becomes rageful, he becomes the Hulk. He becomes a monster and starts destroying things. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the good Dr. Jekyll. He becomes Mr. Hyde. He's a, you know, a carouser, a lunatic, a, a crazy person. He's not like Dr. Jekyll, but that's his alter ego, the werewolf. He's the average person, sees the full moon and becomes this horrible beast that he has to make sure his loved ones are away from him because he may attack them. Okay, that's interesting. And you can see in the scripture, there is oftentimes a war between the flesh and the spirit. I love Romans, I believe it's chapter 7. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Apostle Paul says, this is the great Apostle Paul who we love, and we fall in love with his letters. We love the Apostle Paul. Can't wait to meet him in heaven. He says from his own mouth, the things that I will to do for the Lord, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do because they're evil, I end up doing. The Apostle Paul. I tell you what, that gives me encouragement, right? It should encourage all of us because there's this constant war between the flesh and the spirit, and no different in this church. Although, I believe the Corinthians were succumbing to it. In verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. He likens the, the Corinthians to babies, right? What is a baby? Um, baby comes out, he doesn't have any teeth yet, his digestive system, immune system, they're not developed yet. You don't go feeding a newborn a pound of steak. You'll make the baby sick, Right? The baby needs to start off with the colostrum and then the milk and then the cereals and then you start, you know, you start moving on to bigger things that this child could digest as his digestive system grows and you have the, the, the chymotrypsin and the trypsin that help the baby as he gets older to break down the meat into polypeptides, right, and amino acids, okay? This is a fact. And by the same example, the Apostle Paul says to uh, the Corinthians, you guys are acting like babies. I can't give you the weightier things of God. You're just going to do nothing with it. I have to keep treating you as if you're babies. And have to, uh, un- you have to understand the simple things first. Verse 3. One of the marks of the carnal Christian, sadly enough, is envy, strife, and division. Look at the order. Look at James chapter 4. You know... I just prayed, Lord, what's the next book? And I pray about these books, and then it's James, and then 1 Corinthians. I tell you, the more I'm into 1 Corinthians, I keep seeing James, if you were here for the James study. But envy, strife, and division, that's the order, folks, because envy, jealousy, does something in us. It causes strife, fightings, and fightings cause factions and divisions. And my question is, Do we envy the good people of Calvary Chapel Crossfields? Do we, and I put me in there too, do we envy? Have you ever envied another believer's home? Said, gee, I wish my home looked like that. Maybe you go to a friend's house and, whoa, my place doesn't look like this. It's it's not a pretty thing, that envy. It's called the green-eyed monster jealousy for a reason. You see another believer's car, do you envy the car that they drive? Do you envy their marriage? You ever envy another believer's well-behaved kids? Okay, more than a few. Do you ever envy another believer's looks, physiques, something personal about them? 
Do you ever envy another believer's blessings? Because I tell you what that will do, because I've been there. It causes a resentment. All of a sudden, you don't like that person, and you can't put your finger on why you don't like that person. What does James say? Where do wars and divisions come from? Because you want, you cannot have, and you ask for stuff, and you ask God amiss because you want your stuff. And you know what happens, folks? You will envy, you will be angry and resentful of other people, even in this very church, if you have that envy and resentment. You know what our jealousy says to God? This is what I'm saying to God when I'm jealous. God, I'm not thankful for the blessings that I got. I want what Brian has. I want what Jeff has. I deserve it. Why do they get all the blessings? How about spreading the love around? Now, we may not say that with our lips, but we are saying it with our hearts. That's what uh, envy does, and it's based in pride. I tell you the truth. Thankfulness leads to contentment, and contentment leads to peace. This is an amazing letter. You know, again, we look at the Apostle Paul. We put him on a pedestal. Can't wait to see him in heaven. He had some issues with the Corinthian Christians. When we start really getting into 1st and 2nd Corinthians and realize as we go through the scripture, there was even another letter that was written. He rebuked them once before. We see that Paul had to be tough. He had to say the hard things. He had to say, hey man, you're carnal. What aren't you getting? You know, what is it that you're not getting about being carnal? Sometimes emotions get stirred up when you have to tell the truth. Verse 5. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So so then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. One of the problems in the Corinthian church, again, was factions and divisions. The folly of glorifying men. And the Apostle Paul tries to set it straight, number one, with an agricultural example. He's trying to break up what we would call cliques and factions. You see them today. There's a clique, Christian clique. You can't break into it. They won't smile at you at the store, but if you were part of their clique, they would. You know, I like to break up the the foolishness and the idiosyncrasies of the Christian culture. I don't have a problem doing that because I think it's worth discussing. It happens today. It happens in the modern church. Paul planted, he established the Corinthian church. Apollos comes later and he strengthens and adds to it. Now, you have to understand Apollos and Paul to understand the problems here. The, now, it's through the, through the letters and we're going to get to them. Paul speaks to the Corinthians about their characterization of Paul. And they say, this Paul, his letters are weighty, but when we see him, he's nothing to behold. Okay, so you get the picture that the Apostle Paul was not much to look at. That's not a problem because according to Isaiah, neither was Jesus. It was about the message, and it was about who he was inside. He was deity. Apollos, you get the impression, was this charismatic figure. He had, a, he had great oration skills. You know, he, he melted you with his words. So you have Apollos and you have Paul, and there was, there was factions. But the apostle Paul is saying, listen, we both did a little part of it, but God is the one who saved the souls and matured the church and gave the increase. I'll give you another example. If you go a few miles down the road over two bridges, you'll be in Brooklyn, which is where I grew up. Now, if you go to Brooklyn, people don't have huge houses, but the Italians in Brooklyn, and I'm Italian, so I can say this, they all got spackle buckets with a little bit of dirt and a tomato plant. You see what I'm saying? So you know, you've seen it. They all got tomato plants all over the place. 
And they, it could be a flower pot, whatever. They take a little bit of dirt, put it in a spackle bucket, Luigi puts the dirt in, and Gina puts the plant in, and well, whoever waters it, and the thing starts to grow. You look at it, it doesn't look like anything. After several weeks, you've got this huge tomato plant. Of course, I got them in my yard too. Four to five feet tall with these big juicy tomatoes. You look at the tomato plant, you look at the dirt, and you wonder, how did this happen? The mass of the dirt still seems the same, but the, the, mass, the, the plant is huge. Forget about it. I mean, this is just crazy. <laughs> e, oh, but the point I'm trying to make is <laughs> still in my blood. The point I'm trying to make is that the tomato plant, the water, the dirt, it really is a miracle. You see this tomato plant get huge and these big juicy tomatoes, and you know that it's not the plant or the person who planted or the dirt or the water or the pot. It's God who gives the increase. We can look at this, the natural realm. I tell you, the older I get, the more I'm going back to seeing the simple things of life and being impressed with God. You know, it's just there. It's a miracle. It's the same thing here. I do something, I witness to someone, I talk to you about the Lord, you go out, give somebody a Bible, uh, somebody comes and sits with a person in councils and they get saved. Who gets the credit? Not me, not you, but God gets the credit. It's the same point. And see, God sets up true ministry like this for one reason, so that man can run around boasting about himself, and men still do it. It's so that God could get all the credit. You know, I saw somebody recently that... I had arrested years ago, and uh, you know, I wanted to talk to him about the Lord, because we had a good relationship even after that, because I was very good to him. And I had talked to him a few times, and you know, there was something different about him. As he spoke to me, and something told me, I bet you he got saved. He just had a smile, and he was just joyful. I'm like, this isn't the guy that I remember. Eventually he comes out, he goes, yeah, I gave my life to the Lord, and I'm married, and I got kids, and life is great, and he's... He's, I'm like, we're speaking the same language. I'm like, awesome. I didn't complain because I didn't get to lead him to the Lord. I just had a little part of it, and I was happy about it. So that's what happens. Verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation... And another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So Paul's trying to lessen the focus on him and Apollos and um, take the focus off of men and saying, listen, Apollos and I were ministers, we're tools that are used by God, but you, you're God's field, you know, and it's God who's doing the work in that field. You belong to God. You don't belong to me. You don't belong to Paulus or Cephas or any of those guys. Verse 8. You, what you'll notice here, too, is that each of God's servants will be rewarded for his own effort. And notice, it's not according to the outcome or success. That's the wisdom of the world. We've got to get that out of our heads. When I was in college in, in economics, they would use a term called widgets. Widget was a fictitious thing, and I think now people make widgets. They took, they capitalized on it, but a widget was a fictitious item that you could produce if you were a producer. Now, according to man's economy, what's important is how many widgets can you produce? We want to know how many widgets are going to come out of your factory. In God's economy, God says, I want to see your heart, I want to see your effort, let me worry about how many widgets come out of the factory. You see the difference? Man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Again, this one will 
truly eliminate pride and give the glory to God. God hasn't called us to be successful, only to obedience and labor, and he handles the rest. Verse 9. And he says, him and Apollos, Paul and Apollos are fellow workers. The Greek word for fellow workers, I love this, is synergoi, right? In the English, we get the word synergy from. Now, synergy is interesting. It says that the output of A plus the output of B working together synergistically is greater than the output of A plus the output of B if they were working individually. And you say, how can that be? It's the same output. If you've studied pharmacology or any type of science, you see this with drugs. You see drug A plus drug B working together has a synergistic effect and you get much more out of the drug than if those drugs were working separately. So this is so cool. You even see in etymology, you know, the, the origin of words where God's word is pretty impressive. We should be working together and God provides the synergistic output. How much different would the world be if we all did that? So he, Paul then shifts gears from comparing the church uh, to a crop field to comparing them to a building and lastly, a temple. And we'll explain that. Verse 10. He basically says here that any foundation of any spiritual building must always be Jesus Christ. We saw that in the first two chapters. Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Apostle Paul says, when I came to Corinth, what did I say? I didn't talk about my, my background as a rabbi. I didn't talk about the school that I went to in Tarsus. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the cornerstone for that building of the church. You build the foundation from there and then the spiritual house. No other foundation can be laid. I was talking to a brother, Alejandro, a week and a half ago, and here's a guy who gets it. No matter what we talked about, he says, Pastor Joe, it's about the Word of God. And that's what it is. Sounds so simplistic, oversimplistic, but it's the truth. Once we have God, Christ, Christ crucified, the Word of God, everything else emanates from there. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through the fire. The temple. I'm sorry, back up a little bit. The Apostle Paul now takes the building example and gets a little bit deeper. He talks about a spiritual building. The Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2, said that we're all uh, spiritual houses built with living stones. We're all a part of that, that house as living stones individually, but we build the spiritual house. And as we get into uh, 12, 13, 14, we're going to see as the body of Christ, Paul likens us now to a body, a literal body, and how we're supposed to be working together. But the Apostle Paul gets more specific on the, on the materials. If we're trying to further the kingdom of heaven, saving souls and planting churches is similar to building, then what would we want to use? Only quality building materials. If you're putting an addition on your house, you know, would you use junk? No, you'd use the same, if not better materials than what the house is already made from. You'd use the more modern uh, insulation, you'd use the best uh, wood, because this is a place that you're going to live in. Verse 12, it says that there's different materials, wood, hay, stubble, gold, precious stones, may be a symbol, physical symbols of spiritual deeds. Now, some say the wood, hay, and stubble are the junky materials, and when the fire burns them up, they're ashes, they're no good, but the 
the gold, the silver, and the precious stones will prevail. Some say that they're all a picture of earthly items and they'll all be burned up. But either way, I'm not going to split hairs on that. We want to use good materials. Verse 13, because what's going to happen? There will be a day in the study Bible that's capitalized, a day that we stand before the Lord. Unbelievers, those who rejected God, the great white throne judgment, we don't go to that. That's pretty bad because those who rejected Christ find their way to the lake of fire. But there still will be a judgment seat of Christ where our, our, as believers, what we do is judged to see if there's any worth to it. And it'll be tested by fire. Fire was always a picture of judgment. And I believe it'll reveal motives on that day. So faith without works is dead. We saw that in James. But even if we do works, our works will be measured. Are we doing it with, with the right heart? Are we doing it with the right motives? Do we do them only when there's other people around so we could look good and look like servants? Or do we always have that servant attitude throughout our life, no matter who's looking? Because God's looking. For ministers and pastors, some try to accelerate their ministries using worldly wisdom. I read that article a few months ago. Uh, Bill Hybels, in a moment of uh, humility, said that this whole seeker-friendly thing was a mistake. He should have focused on the Word of God. He said, we brought a whole bunch of people into the church, but they were very shallow. They never really grew because the Word of God wasn't established. Someone told me that later on he recanted that. But you know what? I believe that what he said the first time, he meant it. He probably got a lot of grief from his um, contemporaries. But I believe in that moment his heart was true. And there's, there's pastors and churches that use worldly um, techniques, worldly people to come in and talk about how they can grow the church. I don't really care how long it takes to grow this church. I'm looking for Gideon's 300. Has anyone ever heard of the, the 31,700 that left? Anybody later in the Bible? No. But Gideon's 300 are the ones that stayed. And they were willing to fight and go in the trenches and fight the Lord's battles. 31,700, they left in shame. They could have won the battle, but they were afraid. That's what I'm looking for. Don't do any advertising. I don't believe in that stuff. You're here because either you were here originally or you saw somebody here, a relative, a coworker, a friend who's changed, and you said, gee, I'd like to check that out. That's natural growth. That's the way it should be. For individuals, the stubble of pride, ego, bad motives, working your way to salvation, grudging service will all be revealed on this day. Verse 15. Those who suffer loss, as in heavenly rewards, will suffer loss and they'll be barely get in. I, I use the illustration of the cartoon. You ever see, um, you know, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote and, you know, the old cartoons were so pure. You know, Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd. Well, a cartoon character is, is you know, there's, there's an explosion and they run through the explosion and they get out and they're safe and you see their tushies are kind of smoking a little bit and they're kind of rubbing their heinies. They just barely got through that fire. You know, that's not the way I want to get to heaven. <laughs> you know? Whew. I'm in the kingdom, I'm at a marriage supper of the lamb, and I'm like, you know what, before I sit down, can I just get a bucket of water? I just, I don't know. It's, it's not... Carnal Christians will barely make it to heaven, and they'll make it, and they'll be fine. But that's nothing to be proud of. It reminds me of, you know, all of us in our professions have that one employee that is supposed to be obedient to their boss. They're supposed to just do what the boss asks them to do, and they don't want to do it. So they spend more energy, more brain power, more effort getting around doing their job than if they just would have done it. You see what I'm saying? So there's plenty of examples of that. 
Is that what those who love God want to do? Do we love God? In John 14, Jesus says, here's a litmus test. Those who love me will follow my word. Actually, he says they will keep my word. They'll not only read it, they'll try to pray about understanding it, and they want to apply it to their lives, right? And in the Old Testament, the Father was the same way. If you'll love me, you'll obey me. What are we doing with our short lives? The book of James tells us, I believe in chapter 4, that our lives are just a mist. They're just a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. True. That's what our lives are. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So here's the temple. is the third example that the Apostle Paul uses. Now, what is a temple? All right? it, it worth, it's worth explaining. In the wilderness, the children of Israel worshipped God. And God said there would be an actual place that he would dwell, uh, the Shekinah glory, his presence would be among them. And the tabernacle was basically a, a portable, kind of like we have portable church. It's like a portable house. The children of Israel would set it up, set up the temple or the area, the Holy of Holies would be there, and God would literally, the Shekinah glory, he would dwell there. Well, when Solomon came, he made a permanent structure, and the same thing, the Ark of the Covenant was there, the mercy seat, and the Lord said he would dwell above the mercy seat, the Shekinah glory. So the temple really is a picture of God's house. Now, in the church, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit, as believers, dwells inside of us collectively that's pretty amazing individually and collectively so as the body of believers on the whole earth all christians together god dwells within us we're kind of like his temple here on earth it's a pretty neat uh, example now i believe that what he's saying here is and i'm gonna we're gonna go through this later on in the chapter about uh, some will use this and say well you shouldn't smoke you shouldn't drink you shouldn't overeat you shouldn't do this because your body's a temple of god He's going to get into that a little later. I'll cover that then. But I believe this particular application is the, all of us collectively being the temple. Because if those try to destroy the temple, God will destroy them. I don't think he's saying, and I could be wrong, I don't think he's saying, you individual, if you try to destroy yourself, I'm going to destroy you before you destroy yourself. I don't believe that. I think what he's saying is because of all the divisions and factions in the church, if you try to d destroy what God has set up, meaning his temple, believers collectively, the church, you know, God's not going to be too happy with you. I think that's a better application. They try to infiltrate. They try to destroy with divisive behavior, partisanship, and false teaching. Uh, the Corinthian church was riddled with problems. What about, the, what about today? I mean, how could this apply to today? All churches, the Christian culture, believers collectively, how could we apply that? Well, you can apply it like this. And I could see the Apostle Paul, his passion in his letters. It's bad enough that Satan and his cohorts are trying to destroy the church. But it's even sadder when carnal Christians get caught up in stupid things and cause division in the church. So it's one thing, we know that's his job, Satan. But it's sad when it happens within the church. Uh, in, at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul said, he says, after my departure, my fear is that savage wolves will rise up from within the church to destroy it. It's a shame. Sometimes our own enemies are within the church. So that's, that's pretty sad. But the opposite of divisiveness, partisanship, false teaching is being in the word, teamwork, sooner goy, right? Oneness in mind and spirit. That's the goal. 
How can we work together to accomplish God's will? Do we want to be the carnal Christian or do we want to be the mature Christian? What does the mature Christian do, Pastor Joe? Well, it doesn't mean that you have to read five chapters a night, but you, you want to read God's word. You love God's word. And, you know, if you, if you miss it for a day, you're like, oh, I didn't get to read the word today. You know, I, I miss what God had to say to me today. I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you what you have to read every day. I'm not going to do that. It's about desiring God's word, desiring to pray. I'm aware of his presence all day long, no matter where I am. And I just, whatever it is, you know, I just sometimes look up or I'll just, I think really people think that I'm crazy because I might, I do this and I move my mouth when I'm out in public and I'm talking to God. So one day they're going to come and ask me what I'm doing. But I'm aware of God's presence all the time. And as believers, we love God. He's our father. We are aware of his presence. The mature Christian won't come into the church to divide it, won't come in with pet doctrines to try to peddle, won't come in with agendas, won't come in with ambitions and aspirations. The mature believer will come into a church, a body of believers, get to know people, want to know where they can fit in, where can I serve, how can I help, pastor, how can I lift your arms, what small thing can I do here to bless the body, you know? I, I sit and I pray with my ushers, there's only a handful of them. Uh, every morning, Sunday morning, and we pray and we, we, we talk about stuff. And, uh, you know, it's just amazing to see these few, and we're, we're equal opportunity. We have men and women ushers. It's cool. And these, these few people who actually set everything up in this place so that it, be, it can become a church. They bring the, the equipment in, they, the, you know, the tech stuff. They set up the children's ministry and our children's ministry servants and our tech people. Just a handful of folks bless the, the majority of the believers. That's exciting, and it just warms my heart, you know? Where can I get involved? How can I help to grow the church naturally? That's what the mature believer does. Verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The Corinthians were lifted up with pride as well as buying into elitism and Gnosticism. Now you have to remember their culture. Corinthian believers are followed by, uh, surrounded by Corinth. Corinth was affluent. Corinth was educated. Corinth was, uh, you know, the happening place to be, right? So the believers, unfortunately, were a little bit influenced by the culture and, you know, you actually look down on physical labor. They felt that that was the work of slaves. And Paul was a tent maker, and we're going to get into that next uh, Sunday. But the, the folks didn't want to be ostracized, I guess, by the uh, surrounding culture, and they bought into some of this stuff. The Greeks were big into knowledge and the home of Plato and, you know, all those different guys. I can't think of the other two guys, Socrates and another one. And they, they prided themselves on that. So the Corinthians were kind of lifted up with this pride and this constant thirst for knowledge. And it wasn't the knowledge of the things of God, but just to grow their heads bigger. Paul wasn't condemning education or self-improvement, but only when the world's wisdom is antagonistic to God's wisdom, right? Even if you look at science, right? 2,000 years ago, what did they believe about the insides of your body? Right? They didn't have the electron microscope, so they're... The science of, of the day of the Greeks was maybe somewhat advanced, but they didn't have the information that we had. And as a matter of fact, a lot of our information 
If, if, if people would believe the physicians of that day, you'd laugh at them. Uh, Dr. Semmelweis, a Hungarian physician in the 1800s, dropped the infant mortality rate for childbirths because he implement, implemented sterilizing the, the hands and the arms before delivering babies. So a lot more babies survived uh, with less infection. They actually, the, the students would go from working on cadavers and delivering babies, kind of disgusting. But Semmelweis, only since the 1800s, a lot of the wars, men died of infections because their hands weren't, the doctors didn't sterilize their hands before going into their bodies. And a lot of these doctors who tried to implement sterilization were laughed at, they were mocked. Okay, because the prevailing thought was, what's that going to do? That's stupid. Electron microscope comes along, we see the, the little bugs and the microbes, and we say, gee, yeah, that's what it has to do with. But these guys were pioneers. Um, by the same token, the Corinthians would have to make themselves fools in the eyes of the prevailing wisdom of the Corinthians so they could receive God's wisdom, because his wisdom was far above that culture. And he used Job 5 and Psalm 94. If you have a study Bible, you could see the italicized words were pulled from the Old Testament. We saw good examples of this in our James study too. Now, even today, the prevailing knowledge uh, is evolution, right? Um, if you're a Christian, you believe some big lofty God with a beard created us. That's silly. They laugh at that. Of course, you know, over millions of years, uh, some microbes got together and mutated and became a spot, a freckle became an eye and because the thing wanted to see and a, a, a wart became an arm because he wanted to be on the land. You know what I'm saying? That's evolution. Now, evolution is starting to lose steam. You know what's come up now? You ever hear, how many people, raise your hand, have ever heard of panspermia? A few. Panspermia is the idea because evolution is really really starting to get debunked, that aliens, a long time ago, seeded the planet because it was a nice condition. And we're all seeds from aliens, and eventually they're going to come back for us. That's panspermia. Good stuff, isn't it? Anything, well, they'll, they'll do anything. They just won't believe that there's an all-knowing, omniscient, omnipotent God who did this because he loves us. Can't have that. So we'll have all these crazy ideas. As a matter of fact, I saw a, a movie with Nicolas Cage called Knowing or the Knowing, and you see that theme in the movie. I'm like, son of a gun, panspermia, look at that. Because it comes out of Hollywood. But it, it was so well done that you would think, gee, I, this is a possibility. Forget about it. <laughs> Verse 21. Last few verses. Therefore, let no one glory in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come are all yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Ownership. So um, I guess God's a capitalist because he likes ownership, private property. No, I'm just kidding. The Corinthians made such a big deal and put such an emphasis on these men of God without realizing their inheritance that God had for them. You see, the carnal Christian will run after foolish things, things of the world. A carnal Christian will become a hoarder. They hoard stuff. They want stuff, you know? Wisdom of the world, uh, paltry trophies, not, reeling, not realizing that everything is theirs. We have an inheritance. God has given us an inheritance. Everything is ours. We have, even now, we have, we own Paul and Apollos and all the great preachers. You know, they're ours. And the wisdom is ours, and the deeper things are ours for the taking. It's like the kid who, 
you know, it's like if your kid went through your living room and took all his toys and put them in a sack and ran upstairs and put them in his closet. They're yours. What are you doing scooping them up? You can have them anytime you want. I'm not going to take them. I gave them to you. So the carnal Christian doesn't understand that there's a belonging, there's ownership, right? We own everything. The believer who fully realizes his inheritance from the Lord and seeks after the Lord's wisdom and looks for the deeper things of the Lord as at peace with himself, herself, and everything else around them. So truly, this is the cure for divisiveness and partisanship and all the problems plaguing the Corinthian church and the modern church is to understand God's word, to understand the deeper things of God, to understand the ownership issue, to understand who we are in Christ and to grow in Christ. And I pray that we learn that lesson too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you now. We thank you.